0: Is it lawful for God to do what he wishes with his grace? Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1. And uh, if you'll take the uh, make the effort to turn to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1, whether in your own Bible or uh, taking one of the pew Bibles that's provided for you there, if you'll turn to that in the first book of the New Testament, 20th chapter and verse 1, that's where the uh, lesson will find its text. For this morning, this is a parable, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. It's a parable only found in Matthew's gospel, which to a certain extent makes sense because Matthew was a tax collector. And this is a parable about what is owed. And I think Matthew, as a tax collector, would have thought in those terms. It is spoken in the context of the Lord's last week on earth when he's in Jerusalem preaching and teaching before his ultimate betrayal and crucifixion and resurrection. When he's in the process of making forgiveness available, he gives this parable about forgiveness. And it's also in the immediate context, if we think back to uh, chapter 19, of the disciples' attitude toward who was the greatest. Who was the greatest among them? Who would be the greatest in the kingdom and we see more of that immediately following this parable that we won't have time to get into this morning but suffice it to say that they were spiritually arrogant Uh, they had a sense of entitlement that we're the greatest because we're right here with jesus and what this parable does is it takes a very common scene that's what all the parables did it takes a very common scene that everybody would have been familiar with But this parable, instead of saying, here's how that applies to spiritual things, this thing that everybody would know, it turns it on its head, gives us an outcome that is totally unexpected, and then Jesus says, this is how that's like you and my kingdom. Would you read this parable with me beginning in verse 1? Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, that's a very fair, very standard wage for one day's labor, a denarius. Verse 3 And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So in Jewish culture, the workday began at 6 a.m. That's when he agreed to these first this first group of folks. He says, "I'm going to pay you a full day's wage." He goes out three hours later, 9 a.m. He finds some other people there in the marketplace, and he's going to invite them to come and work as well. And he said to them, "You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you." Now, who is in a better position at this point? The ones that have agreed to a denarius or the ones who say, hey, come on, work for me. And they say, well, how much are you going to pay us? Whatever is right, I'll give you. Uh, how do you think that would go for most of us if our employers came to us? Or maybe you have a really good employer. They came to us and they said, here's your salary for this year. Whatever is right, we will give you. Good luck. Now... This would have not been an uncommon thing in this day and age. Uh, When we lived up in Lindale, there was a place on Saturday mornings you could go, the the Lindale Public Library, and you'd go and there'd be people gathered there looking for a day's work. And you could pull up and you say, hey, I need three people today or four people today for whatever this Saturday project was. They'd come and hop in, work for you. Uh, I assume there's somewhere like that in Lufkin, though I don't know specifically where it is. This is pretty common, right? And so far, everything that's said is exactly what we would expect. Uh, I get some workers at the beginning of the day. I need a few more, so I go back a few hours later, I get a few more. But then things start to get weird. So let's keep reading verse 5. Again, he went out the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. So he goes back at noon. He goes back at 3 p.m., Verse 6, and about the 11th hour, that's 5 o'clock in the afternoon, there's only one hour of work left in this 12-hour work day. He went out and found others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? Uh, you can almost imagine him saying, did you not hear me calling for workers this whole time? You're still standing here, what's the deal? But they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. And so these men merely trusted that they were going to receive something from the landowner. Verse 8, so when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they received each a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day? Now, now what was their objection? Was their objection to what they agreed upon? Was their objection to this is a fair's day's wage? Or was their objection in comparison to these other people? Imagine that the landowner had gone out and just hired them and nobody else. And at the end of the day, he gives them a denarius. Do you think they would have been upset? I think likely not. It's what they had agreed to. They were upset about his generosity toward other people. We might say his grace toward other people. That these people who merely trusted with no prearranged agreement received far more than these others who had agreed to a denarius. And so, verse 13. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, now... You've heard my preaching any amount of time and maybe from your own study. you know when somebody calls somebody a friend in the book of Matthew, it's not a good thing. It's being used ironically. Friend, you're not acting very friendly, we might say. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Uh, Other translations say, is your eye envious because I am generous? So, Jesus makes application, verse 16, the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called but few are chosen. This is a parable that might be applied to a number of different things regarding salvation and forgiveness. But when it gets right down to it, this is a parable about God's grace. And it hinges on the question, the landowner, who is God, if we make application to this parable, it hinges on the question that God asks in verse 15. Is it not lawful for me, To do what I wish with my own things. And so our first order of business in the lesson this morning is to answer that question. Is it lawful for God to do what he wishes with his own things, including his grace? I saw three heads shake yes. Good. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to try it again. This time, if you say yes to the question, thumbs up. You can do it right here if you want. If you say no to the question, thumbs down. I'm going to ask it again. Is it lawful for God to do what he wishes with his own things, including his grace? I like double thumbs up. That's good. Absolutely. Do you believe that? Well, if you do, there's some applications that we need to make. If you say yes to that question, you're ready for the rest of the lesson. You're ready to appreciate God's grace. Um, Thank you for being here this morning. You've already been welcomed, but, but I want to welcome you again. We see a number of visitors with us. We're grateful for your presence. If you're here in person, you're online, we're grateful that you're here. And I personally am grateful that you're here because I'm so excited about this lesson to think about and see and perceive a little better what God's grace looks like, to appreciate God's grace. But in order to appreciate God's grace, we're going to have to do three things that we see right here in this passage. And this morning, I'm going to have one main point, so we're going to spend most of our time on the first point, and then I'm going to have a couple of secondary points to build off of that, just so nobody panics. Uh, when we're, you know, three quarters of the way into the first point. So to appreciate God's grace, we have to do three things from this passage. And it's all about our viewpoint, the way we view things. That's what happened with these people who came to work, right? Their viewpoint changed, and with it, their attitude changed. Theirs changed for the negative. I hope ours changes for the positive. To appreciate God's grace, first of all, we have to change our viewpoint of what we think is fair. What we think we deserve for the things that we do for God or in a religious context. Now, I want you to be totally honest to yourself for just a moment. You don't have to answer this question out loud. You don't even have to give me thumbs up or thumbs down. But think about this Does this strike you as fair? I mean, mean just, I know Jesus told the parable, and so it's true and all those things, but take that out of it for a moment. If you just heard about this with some job, you know, we think back to Lindale, and some guy goes up to the library, and he's hiring guys for the day, and he hires some at six in the morning, and then nine, and then noon, and then three, and then five, and some of those people only work one hour, and he pays everybody the same. Is that fair? Now imagine that you're the people that he hired at, 6 a.m. and you worked all day long and it's Texas and it's the heat of the day Um, and Israel can get just as hot as Texas and you see everybody else get paid exactly the amount you were paid for 12 hours for their one hour of work. Is that fair? Does that seem fair? Uh, Doesn't seem fair to me. Maybe you could put it in these terms. Maybe you've not been a, a common laborer in that way. Maybe you have. But put it in these terms. Those of you, whether in school or work, have had a group project. And you know that one person, I think there's one in every single group project, the the loafer, the one who just goes along on everybody's coattails. And if you say to yourself, I've never had somebody like that in my groups, you're that person. (laughs) Because there's one in every group, right? Um, Stephanie was doing some grad school work, and there was one guy... She was in several classes with this guy. I think he was really nice and everything. But every time it was time for a group project, he'd say, I'm with Stephanie. And then he would always very nicely email her at some point and say, hey, do you, wanna, you want me to turn in our project? And that was basically the work that he did over the course of the project, right? Is that fair? Is that fair when somebody gets the same credit with the boss, gets the same credit grade on, on the project as what you did? Uh, We're not sure exactly who said this. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, maybe he borrowed it from something Plato said, but there's an old phrase that goes something like this. Little seems more unequal than the equal treatment of unequals. It just doesn't seem fair that people do different amounts of work if they are to receive the same prize at the end. But that, beloved, is where our viewpoint is wrong. We are all equals when it comes to God's grace. We are all sinners in need of grace. We are not workers getting or earning what we deserve. Who do you think of yourself as in this parable? If you're like me, you probably think about your one you're, you're one of those that was hired at the beginning. I'm, I'm a hard worker. I would jump at the opportunity to work. I was taught how to work. I'm one of those guys. But the closer we can get to these people who were hired at the 11th hour, the more clearly we are seeing our predicament in sin. And the more clearly we are able to see God's grace toward us. None of us. None of us are these first workers, even in the context of what Jesus is saying here, which I believe applies to a certain degree to the Jews and the Gentiles. None of us here are those first workers. But even the first workers seem seem to forget where were they at the beginning of this parable. They were unemployed. They were standing in the marketplace with no prospects for a good day's wage, for a good day's labor. Even those first ones were called by God's grace. And we forget sometimes that we were all sinners when God first called us. Do you remember? Do you remember what it was like to be separated from God and then to be brought to Him? What would happen if you got what you deserved? What do you deserve? Do you know? If I understand the Scriptures correctly, what I deserve, because of my sin, not Adam's sin, not your sin, not anybody else's, because of my sin and my unfaithfulness, what I deserve is hell. And those who seek justification on a a merely legal basis, what is right, what is wrong, what is fair, what is just, if that's the way we're seeking justification to be made right with God, we will be sorely disappointed on the judgment day. Robert Capone said, if the world could have been saved by good bookkeeping, it would have been saved by Moses, not by Jesus. And if we want justice, if we want what is fair, then we will get hell. Philip Yancey uh, says of this parable in his book on grace, which sadly I... I can't recommend the whole book. Uh, I think I agreed with about 20% of what he said before this quote I'm about to read. Uh, He has some very good books on suffering and prayer and so forth, and I enjoy him as an author. But what he says here about this parable I thought really resonated as truth. He says, in regard to this parable, Jesus' story makes no economic sense, and that was his intent. He was giving us a parable about grace, which cannot be calculated like a day's wage. We like to think of ourselves as responsible workers. And the employer's strange behavior baffles us as it did its original hearers. But we risk missing the story's point, that God dispenses gifts, not wages, None of us gets paid according to merit, for none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, he says, we would all end up in hell. And this is what the scriptures teach. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul was trying to get across in the book of Romans. If you mark your spot there in Matthew chapter 20, turn to Romans chapter 3, if you would, for just a moment. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Chapter one talks about primarily the Gentiles who had turned their back on God, though they could see God in the creation, they, they weren't grateful, they weren't graceful, they, they didn't see God, though he could be clearly seen. And then in chapter two, he, he turns to the Jews and says, don't think you're any better, in some ways you're in a worse spot, because you should know God, and yet you still are turning your back on God. So in chapter 3, he's going to make application to everybody. And so notice just a few verses with me, beginning there in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Continuing to quote uh, from the Old Testament in verse 12. They have all turned aside and have together become, become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And that doesn't mean that there aren't people who occasionally do what's good. Raise your hand if you've ever done something good. Okay, if you aren't raising your hand, you need to get on that, right? (laughs) Everybody does something good from time to time, right? But nobody, with one exception, only does good. Always does good. And so there is none righteous, no, not one. Drop down to verse 19 where he makes application, and and go back and read verses 10 through 18 sometime. He gets pretty extreme about that. Now we know that whatever the law says, the law of Moses says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God, so that we might see our predicament. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. I know what sin is. I'm able to identify sin. And I'm able to acknowledge that I am a sinner because of those things. Verse 21. But now, under the covenant of Christ, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets were looking forward to this day. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, Jew or Gentile, those people then and us now. There is no difference, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be two things, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so it is because of Jesus' sacrifice that God can still be just and yet you can be justified and go to heaven instead of hell. And there's a great contrast in talking about boasting under the law and Abraham that that he continues to talk about, but let's just jump down to the conclusion of those things in chapter 4 and verse 4. Now to him who works, Romans 4, 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Uh, English Standard Version says, as his due, as what is owed to you. And so the overall message of these verses is crystal clear. Only if we work perfectly can God's salvation be counted as debt or a wage or something owed instead of a gift by his grace. And we have all sinned, all of us who have reached the uh Age of accountability where we understand right and wrong. We have sinned, and none of us can be justified by perfect law-keeping like in the law of Moses. We all need God's grace. And, ladies and gentlemen, this is where we have to start if we're going to understand grace. I, in my sin, before coming to Christ, I was in the same situation as all all other sinners, all other sinners, no matter how good or bad I might perceive them to be. I'm not better. I'm not more deserving. I am a sinner who is saved by grace. To drive the point home, let's look at one more passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 1, as you know, is one of my favorite passages, and I've preached from that chapter a great deal over the last 12 years. That I've been here. Um, but after a chapter on grace and inheritance and what God has done and continues to do and what we need to see to appreciate those things, in chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul turns extremely negative from extremely positive to extremely negative. And he says, and you... Maybe your translation says, he made alive. You see how that's in italics? That's not in the original text. They're trying to jump ahead and tell you what God's going to do. That's not what Paul did. Paul just said, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Well, who are you talking about, Paul? Who's the you? Well, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature. As that word is used here, it's talking about our habitual practice. This is what you did. This is the way you lived. We were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. To see God's grace, you got to see that that you, outside of Christ, are dead in trespasses and sins. I'm not going to leave you there. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's hard for me to stop reading there, but that's the point. That I'm trying to get across this morning. And just because I came to my senses faster than some others, even some who have not yet come to their senses yet, doesn't mean that I don't need the same mercy and grace as them. Turn back to Matthew chapter 20. Notice there in verse 14. I wish... This is God speaking as the landowner. I wish to give this last man the same as yours. We have to see God's grace. And when it is all said and done, every worker got what what he needed, what, what God wanted to give. And we might be jealous of someone who is paid the same as us for doing much, much less. But what if the payment was bigger to both of us? So put yourself in that same situation. You know, you're a common laborer and somebody hires you for the day. And at 6 a.m., you know, you go and you start working and you're working in the heat of the day. And you work all day long. And as the day goes, some other people trickle in. And in fact, some people come at 5 o'clock. And there at 6 o'clock, you've agreed to a, a common day's wage. And at the end of the day, the landowner comes... And he gives the person in front of you $250 million. And then he turns to you and he says, here, here is your $250 million. Do you think you would say in that moment, that that is so unfair. I can't believe, he's only worked one hour. He got $250 million too. Or would you be high-fiving that guy? (laughs) We both got so much more than we deserve. Amen? That's God's grace. We are all getting so much more than what we deserve. That's salvation in Jesus Christ, if we can see it. Far more than a fair wage for what we have done, it is a gift that has to be free because it can't be bought. Such is its incredible, incalculable value. It is worth far more than any payment that we could make. And the only way we could stand before God justified without grace is if we lived perfectly. And only Christ himself was able to do that. God, our God, my God, is a God who loves to give good gifts. That's the God of the Old and New Testaments. And we need to focus on the grace that he has given us that we don't deserve much more, and far less on what others get or might get that we don't think they deserve. Now that's the main point of our lesson. but There are two other smaller things that I want us to point out from this parable that I think will be helpful to us and really making application to what that looks like. So our second thing, to appreciate God's grace, we must change our viewpoint of who has the right to determine the conditions of the gift. Uh, People talk a lot about the sovereignty of God when it comes to grace and salvation, and yet it seems to me that many of those same people immediately violate God's sovereignty. People say God is absolutely sovereign. And I agree, if we define that in the correct biblical way, that God is sovereign, that God is the one who decides all things, that God has the right to choose how things are going to be done in all things because he's creator, because he has all power and authority and dominion and might. And any other word you want to add to that? God is sovereign. So, some say, That means you can't do anything. God can't require anything of you. And my response is, well, okay, who says? You? Because God is sovereign. And God makes the choice of what he will and won't do. God's sovereignty means that he is the one who gets to decide what is required and what isn't. Right? Right? Doesn't God's sovereignty mean he is the one who gets to decide what you must do and what you don't have to do? It's God's decision, not ours. And so, too, he was the one who made the decision what these workers would receive in compensation. But what we do so often is we make the same mistake that those first workers made. Did you you catch what they did there in verse 10? They supposed. They're seeing everything that's happening, and they thought to themselves, I've got this thing figured out. I know what's fair. I know what people deserve and don't deserve. And so they stepped in the place of the landowner, stepped in the place of God, and says, this is what the landowner can and can't do. And sadly, there are many in religion today who do exactly the same thing. I'm going to decide what it is God can require and not require. And that's not always malicious. But that teaching is common. And before we determine exactly what might be required, can we agree to this point? That God is the one who has the right to determine the conditions of the gift that he gives. He is the only one who has that right. It's always dangerous to start supposing with God. When we start forcing our standards on him, we will rarely come out at the right place. And that's what too many do today. God makes the choice of what He will or won't do and what we can or can't do. Isn't that what we see here in this parable in verse 4? You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. In verse 7, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. Verse 14, take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? We already said yes to that, right? He is the one who decides what must be done to receive his things. And maybe you say, well, but you know, he doesn't require anything. Well, is that what we see in the parable? Even those who came at the 11th hour still had to do what? Still had to come. They still had to come at his invitation. We're going to talk about God's long-suffering, waiting on them to come here in just a moment. But God has the right to set the conditions on His grace, on any gift that He gives. And we have no right to to point to God and say, well, you can't require anything. And we shouldn't complain about the way things are done, or the way things are judged, or the way things are given. That's all whittling on God's end of the stick, as the old-timers used to say. We must all instead just trust and obey whatever it is God says to us. And if He requires faith, we should believe. If He requires confession, we should make it with our mouth. If He requires repentance, we should turn from our old man. And if He requires baptism, we should go down into that watery grave to rise to walk in newness of life. It is His right to require what He wills to receive His salvation. And then finally, number three, to appreciate God's grace, we should change our viewpoint of what we want for others, to make that viewpoint more like God. What this—I'll admit this—this parable um, is a little scary to me. I've reached a point in my Christian faith, in my maturity, where I know I'm going to heaven. Uh, And I don't mean that in an arrogant sort of way. I just read 1 John and he says that you need to have boldness and you need to know you're going to heaven. And then he lists the reasons why. And I say, well, I'm trying to walk in the light as he is in the light. I I love the truth and I love my brethren and I'm trying to live that as best as I can. And then when I fall short, I go to God in confession and repentance. And he promises me as a child of God, he promises me that he will cleanse me of all sin and all unrighteousness. I know I'm going to heaven. Amen. But this parable is one of the few in the Bible that still scares me a little bit. Because there will be some who come close to forfeiting eternal life because of spiritual pride. Isn't that what happened with these workers at the beginning? Look there in verse 14 Take what is yours and go your way. What does that imply? That implies that they were arguing so much that they they were on the verge of not even taking what it was that they were promised. If you're going to be this unfair, I'm not even going to take what it is you're offering. And maybe some fall into that same trap. And we say, that can't be, really? But it is pride when we believe that we can be forgiven because we aren't that bad. But then they, whoever they are, whether that's Jonah with the city of Nineveh, as we talked about this morning, whether they is all those sinful people we see out there in the world. If we believe we can be forgiven because we're not that bad, but they can't because they're too bad, we may find ourselves on the day of judgment seeing them be saved and us not. Especially when it comes to those who have sinned against us. I don't say that lightly, because I know that's the sin that hurts the most. And especially when it's someone that we view as a, a vile sinner instead of just a regular old sinner. You know, it's not those regular old sins that we all commit. No, it's these gross sins. It's these horrible sins. It's these sins that have intense and devastating consequences. And yet... And yet as long as there is breath in their body, God gives them the opportunity to repent. I want everyone to be saved. Try that. Try that statement on for size. Let it roll around in your mouth a little bit. In fact, you always get yourself in trouble when you do things like this, but will you say it with me? If if you're willing, will you say it with me? I want everyone to be saved. Is that true? Like everyone? Everyone? 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 says of our God, God desires all, all men, all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But if we question the long-suffering of God toward those who have sinned more than us or have worked less than us, we might be tempted to give up our own salvation rather than accept that they can be saved too. But we need to remember in those moments, however badly they maybe have sinned against us, it is really God who they have most sinned against, and yet we take it so personally sometimes, don't we? Uh, Yesterday, both my girls played ball games, and during Brooklyn's basketball game at 9 o'clock yesterday morning, uh, there was one play... You know me. You know how quiet I am at these games. I never say anything. If you don't know me, you know that's not true. Um, well, there was one occasion where our team is throwing it in, and this little girl has the ball above her head, and she's looking for somebody to throw it into. And the girl who's guarding the inbounds pass, who is actually a girl I know and love, she's just sweet as she can be, but she's also very aggressive. I think partly because I taught her that last year. Well, this girl on our team's trying to throw the ball in, and she'd had enough of it. And so she's jumping around, jump. finally she steps over the line, takes the ball away from her, and starts dribbling the other way. And she goes down and scores a basket. And the ref calls nothing! <laughs> and so, a couple times, once, twice, three, not very loud or long, I yelled at the ref. Like, you, you can't do that! She, she's out of bounds! you you got to take the points off the board! and yet I see the girl who's throwing it in, who got the ball taken away from her, and she's like, skipping down the other end, you know? And and as irate as I was, I was indignant, you know? It was hard to stay that way for very long when the girl who was actually sinned against, she had already forgotten. She had already moved on. If God is forgiven... Don't misunderstand me. There are consequences, sure, ramifications to sin. But if God has forgiven, he was the one who has sinned against the most. He was the one who sent his son for that sin. And so if God can forgive, let us leave it in his hands. Let us let God, to go with point two, decide what is required for forgiveness. And I can accept, I can even rejoice in his perfect judgment on the matter. Why? Because God's grace is motivated by his love and by his anxiety for his laborers, his children, by his long-suffering toward all people. Five times God goes back to the marketplace seeking those who were idle, seeking those who didn't come the first four times. And that includes me, and that includes you. And He desperately wants you to come to Him. He has made the way, He has prepared the place, and He is asking you in loving, long suffering concern, why are you still idle? Won't you come? Whatever is right in God's sight, you will receive. You've been called. Won't you become one of the chosen? By putting Christ on in baptism to rise to walk in newness of life. Won't you come now and accept God's grace? And we encourage you to do so as we stand and as we sing.